0: We're going to continue our series in 1 Thessalonians this morning. The title of our message is, One Size Does Not Fit All. And we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. And for those who would like to make tally marks every time I say the key word, the word today is different different, okay? So, we will begin by reading the passage together. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and help us to see the wonderful things that are here in this precious book, the Bible. And so, Lord, be with us today and bless my efforts to unpack this passage and to feed the flock of God over which we have been given responsibility. So we thank it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in review of last, not last week, but the uh, last part of this series in First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 12 through 14, we read, and we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you. And we saw that the Greek verb is oida, and it is usually translated as no, know those who who labor among you. So recognizing in this context means to know by noticing someone personally. You, You see them in action. And we saw that the word kopayo means laboring, even laboring to the point of exhaustion. Now, that's not saying we should allow all of our leaders to become exhausted but rather that there's a willingness in the heart of each elder and deacon to put the time in and to make the effort, even though it is difficult, to labor hard. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, the second part of that, and and who are over you in the Lord. And we saw that this word, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, means to superintend or to preside over. It's a long time ago since I took Greek, and uh, I stumble over these these words. And we saw in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, and admonish you. And sometimes this word admonish is misunderstood as being uh, somehow angry, you know, somehow uh, confrontational in a in a mean-spirited kind of way, but all it really means is someone who teaches with authority, someone who has the right to teach, like a parent teaching a child, like an employer training a new employee. There's authority behind the instruction. And so the word admonish is this kind of instruction that is coming with the force of some level of authority. And then we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And we saw that this word, hegeomai, means to consider how valuable they are to you and to show your love, express your love to them for that. And so we are now looking briefly at the, toward the end of last section, we looked at the qualifications of an elder. And I'm just going to flip through the the key slides that made this point. I love this guy. Uh, And we saw that the authoritative elder, as opposed to the authoritarian elder, will happily show you the outcome of his faith. And we see in Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then on the other hand, we saw that the authoritarian elder relies on his academic credentials and his office as an elder rather than the outcome of his own faith. And we see in 3 John, in verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Very sad commentary, but this is in God's Word in order to let us know that this happens. Sometimes you'll have leadership in which the authoritarian uh, motive just begins to take over, and it is often ridiculous, as in this case where the very Apostle John is being uh, resisted and not permitted to come to the church. And he's even, uh, his his letters are not being read to the church either. So very sad. And then finally we saw that you should stop butting heads with one another. You should be at peace among yourselves and not be a distraction to the elders of the church because there may be things uh, going on you're not aware of and if you're distracting them by your headbutting, uh, you may find yourselves casualties of this. And so make it easy for those who are taking care of you to take care of you, because it's in your interest to do so. This is not something that's indulging the leaders. It's rather, it is giving the leaders the freedom to focus on what is really important, okay? So that's our review. Now, today we come to uh, an interesting short passage in which Paul puts together several exhortations. And when it comes to the ministry, he's telling us that one size clearly does not fit all, that we need to respond differently to those who have different needs within the body. And so we read the passage again. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Notice these different kinds of people with different kinds of needs. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Now, it's important to note that these people being referred to in this passage are all members of the body of Christ. We're not talking about unbelievers here. We're talking about believers who have different kinds of needs. Now, parents realize this quickly. Uh, It's, uh, if you've ever raised children, then you know that uh, not all kids are going to be alike. Uh, there are different kinds of needs, different kinds of ministries. I enjoyed putting this slide together. It was a lot of fun. And uh, there we are. Every child is different. So you learn as parents, even though you're, these are the same family, same parents, they come into the family and each one has got its, his own or her own different temperament. And so there are different kinds of people and different kinds of ministry needed. Some children and some adults will collapse with just a glance of disapproval. They are emotionally fragile. They're often insecure. There there is no judgment here. We're just saying that's the way they are. And you need to respond to them in terms of how they are. Hmm? Is it needing? Oh. Okay. Let's do this. How about if I put it right there? Is that better? What's it doing? Is it crackling? I probably rub it on my sweater there. Is it still crackling? Testing one, two, three. Test. Okay. Okay. So you're going to have some, some people who just are so sensitive... You have to approach them with that understanding. Now, there are others, children and other adults as well, who will not respond to any kind of rebuke. They're emotionally tough. They're, they can be obstinate. And the attempt to try to uh, minister to them, uh, it reminds me of the old story of the man who bought a mule. And uh, when he bought this mule from another man, another farmer, He said, now this mule is very well trained and all you have to do is speak to it and it will do what you want it to do. So when you say giddy up, it will go. When you say haw, it will stop or whoa. And so just uh, remember that. So he takes the mule home and he hitches it up to his plow and he says, giddy up. And the mule just stands there. And he says, giddy up. And the mule just stands there. And so he's thinking, this is not working. So he goes back to the farmer that he bought the mule from. And he asks him, um, what do you mean this thing will do whatever I say? It won't do anything I say. He says, well, let me see. And so the, the farmer goes and, and grabs a two by four. And he walks up to the mule and he just smacks it up the side of the head with the two by four. And then he says, giddy up. And the mule takes off. And the farmer who had bought the mule says, you said all I had to do was talk to the mule and it'll do what I said. He goes, well, yeah, but first you've got to get his attention. So there are some people like that. You don't hit them with a two before. But you have to be firm. You have to be clear. You can't be... uh, You can't treat this person the way you would treat the person who is fragile. If you talk to the person who's fragile in the same way you talk to the person who is uh, obstinate, they're just going to melt into a puddle in front of you. So you have to be gentle. You have to be patient. And even with the one who is uh, tough and, and obstinate, you have to be patient, waiting for God to work in their lives. We read in Proverbs chapter 17 in verse 10, Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So there's two different people there. The wise person, the foolish person. Uh, Speaking to the foolish person is not very effective because they're just used to ignoring counsel. They're used to just giving the back of their hand to any attempt to give them guidance. And so in this passage, Paul points out the different needs of different kinds of members within the local church. And we have to keep it in mind that we are talking about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're dealing with members of the church. And so this instruction is important. And so he begins by saying, we exhort you, brethren. Now, The word exhort in the Greek means literally to urge, to exhort, to encourage someone to take some action. So when we exhort you, we're asking you to do something. All right? Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 1, we're given some guidance as to how to approach this. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. We're in the family of God, and we want to give uh, respect to whom respect is due. But sometimes, as an elder, you have to give an exhortation to an older man, someone older than you are, and you have to approach that with all due respect, right? You want this older man to get the benefit of your ministry and the responsibility you have as an elder, but you want to do so in such a way that you do not embarrass, you do not humiliate, you do not create this sense of awkwardness because you are younger and you're now given responsibility to provide that exhortation. And to the younger men, you speak to them as brothers, not as children, you know, I have found over the years in, in my life as in ministry and uh, pretty much in family as well, that you can respect a man into doing the right thing, whereas you cannot nag him into doing it. You cannot um, insult him into doing it. You have to respect him into doing it. And in what it sounds like is, is something like this, you know, I trust you to do the right thing. I really believe in you. And I know that when you sort this out, you will do the right. I'm not saying you'll do what I say. I'm saying you'll do what you know the Lord wants you to do. You You will do the right thing. Men rise to that kind of respect. And they don't want to disappoint you in your attempts to provide leadership. Leadership is not authoritarian. Remember that. It is authoritative. And so these others, members of the body, are intended to follow you in your faith because they see the results of your conduct in your life. They see the garden that you tend, and they want the fruit and the vegetables that they see in that garden growing in their garden. And so when you're standing in your own garden giving instruction, um, you don't have to be authoritarian because you are authoritative. People want to know what you're doing. They want to know how to get those results in their own lives. Now, this all gets complicated as we go through life. We are none of us perfect. We cannot say I've never made a mistake. All my kids are flying, you know, in the right direction and everything is just great. No, we all have to deal with our own issues. And that's going to come up in a moment as we see the encouragement to comfort one another. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, we're commanded by the Apostle Paul, speaking to leaders within the church, preach the word. That means proclaim it. Be ready in season and out of season. Always uh, be ready to respond with the word of the Lord. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Notice the balance there. It's an uh, an authoritative word, but it is rendered, it is delivered with patience and with a willingness to walk through it and explain it carefully. In Titus chapter 2, in verse 15, speak these words, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise or ignore you. The word despise in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uh, we often fail to realize that the word has changed meanings uh, since the King James Version was written. The word despise in the King James uh, English means to ignore, or to neglect, or to just not pay attention to. It doesn't mean you're angry at it. It doesn't mean you're disdaining it. You know, for instance, we read in Hebrews that, that uh, our Lord despised the cross. Okay. He, he did not hate it. Okay. He ignored the pain and the suffering for the joy that was set before him. So it's not that he's unaware of it. He's not angry at it. <coughs> excuse me he's simply not letting that pain override the the thing he's focused on which is the joy of you being saved being in Christ of the father saying well done of taking his place at the father's side on the right hand of the father jesus is not uh despising the pain and the suffering he's ignoring the pain and the suffering as he focuses on what is his cause of joy. So in this passage, let no one despise you means don't let anyone ignore you. That's a lot easier than (laughs) not letting them despise you in the negative sense. Now, this means that church leaders have to preach. We have to be persuasive. We have to convince people of doing the right thing. We have to plead with the congregation to be doers of God's Word and not hearers only. Sometimes we have to rebuke people who are being foolish. But again, with patience, with long-suffering, we have to exhort. That means to give instruction that has some authority behind it. We're responsible to do these things. And so now we turn to probably the most challenging of ever, anyone in the list, and that is to warn the unruly. Now, anytime they're dealing with someone who is unruly, they're often not going to be very receptive to your attempts to warn them. And so we see in 1 Thessalonians five fourteen, warn those who are unruly. And the word warn means to admonish, to warn, to instruct, to give counsel concerning some impending trouble. Remember, you don't warn people about good things. You warn them about bad things that are going to happen if they don't listen to what you're saying. Now, the word unruly, ataktos, means literally to be disorderly disorderly, unruly, or insubordinate, if you were in the army or in some uh, position where there's officers and then there's uh, those under those officers, to be unruly is to ignore the commands of those who have authority in that regiment. It's referring to those who are not following the order and discipline expected of them within their community. This could also refer to somebody who is disregarding uh, the church polity, that's disregarding and, and ignoring the Constitution, that's failing to take to heart what has been decided by the community as being the way that things are done. Now, this creates situations sometimes, as we see in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23 that the uh, the person we're dealing with is failing to walk in the Spirit, failing to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which one of which is self-control. Now, we have to follow the logic of this. If self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, then no Christian can truthfully say they cannot help themselves from being unruly. Right? You have the power of the Holy Spirit to be self-controlled. And so when we're confronting someone in the body of Christ, a fellow member of the body of Christ, a brother or sister who we, we have no reason to believe they're not born again, but yet they are being unruly, the response of the leadership is to warn them. Now, unruliness can lead to some real trouble. Historically, it has led to some very real problems. And so we see in the scriptures some very strong words. Now, I want you to uh, hear what I'm saying as being a ministry that is intended to restore the unruly, not simply to punish them. Okay? They're members of the body of Christ. So, Titus chapter 3 and verse 10 reject a divisive man, after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, the words used here make it sound really, really horrible. You know, a person is warped, they're sinning, and they're self-condemned. But that can be the condition of a fellow believer. They've gotten some idea that they're going to just press in an inordinate way to the point where it begins to distort their perception of other things that are important, and they're beginning to be warped. Okay, you know, have you ever seen a warped board? You know, you leave a piece of lumber out in the rain, let it get really wet, and then when it dries, it starts to bend and twist, and you end up with all kinds, they've got lots of terminology for this. Uh, when you go, to, you go to the lumber yard, they'll say, well, that one's got a yaw in it. And I go, what, what's a yaw? Well, this one's got a pretty much of a twist. Well, those are all different kinds of warps. And warping means the thing is no longer straight. It's no longer usable. It, it, it won't fit anywhere. It's, it's just warped. And that situation is sinful. Remember, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. To not walk in the Spirit is sinful. And so this situation means a person is self-condemned. They're in a situation in which their behavior is now disrupting and interfering with the peace and the the quality of the community in the body of Christ. And so Paul is writing to Titus and saying, you need to reject a divisive person after a first and a second admonition or a first or second warning. Now, are these people being just rejected entirely? No. But a recurring character flaw requires church leaders to take action in order to protect the congregation from one of its own members. Now, I've lived long enough to have to counsel families in which a member of their own family has gotten involved in serious sin with other members of their own family. Now, they're still members of the family. And the goal is to restore this person, not to destroy this person. To see them come out of this sinful behavior and back into a place where they're participating properly in relationship to all members of the family. Now because of that, the same kind of thing can happen in the church. You can have people who get sideways with one another and begin to sin, and the result is that it is a destructive effect upon the congregation. Now this is a character flaw in the life of a person who is saved, okay, It's not an unsaved person. It's a besetting sin, a character flaw that has to be addressed in order for it not to harm the rest of the body. And so the the emphasis in this situation is on protecting the body while serving the individual who needs to be corrected. Okay? Does that make sense? So again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14... If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Can you see how it all comes together here? We're dealing with what does it mean to warn the unruly? How do you do that? Warning the unruly brother, uh, the unruly person as a brother, tells us that Christians can be unruly. Now, don't try to be more tolerant than God when you come into situations like this. We have to exercise discipline. Now think about the way we have to deal with children. Children. If you decide to be more kind and merciful to your children, then God himself is merciful toward his children. If you decide, well, I am not going to discipline my children, even though I read that clearly in Hebrews that God disciplines his children and sometimes administers some things that are painful for the moment, but they yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. And say, well, I'm not going to discipline my children. I'm too enlightened to do that. Because we often end up with children in their teenage years who have no self-control. Who have no respect for their parents as an authority in their lives. Who are offended by the very idea that you would want to control their behavior. You see, don't wait until you're meeting them as teenagers, you know. You want to deal with them as toddlers and preschoolers. And that you might just be able to work yourself out of a job to the point where they're just not misbehaving anymore. You don't have to administer discipline in that way. That's wonderful. But please do not try to be more spiritual than God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, we read, Deliver such a one to Satan. Whoa! Now we're really this is scary, right? Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Do Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So in this particular case, there was a man in the church who was sinning. It was a sexually immoral sin. And it was so outrageous that even unbelievers outside the church would be appalled by this particular sinful behavior and Paul is saying you Corinthian leaders you got to deal with this now when he says turn such an one over to satan most bible scholars see that as meaning withdrawing the benefits of church covering and protection from that person so that they are now susceptible to Satan's attacks. Now, this is weird. I don't entirely understand how it works. But I know from what Paul is saying here that the goal is for this person not to get away with it, not to go on and have a comfortable life, but rather to have some kind of destruction of the flesh, some kind of consequence in this world that brings him to repentance. Repentance. And in that repentance, he returns to the flock, returns to the body, and enjoys the benefits of life in Christ. Now, most Bible scholars see 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6 as being the completion of this discipline. And here's what Paul has to say to the same church. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient For such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So, evidently, this decision of the elders to follow through with Paul's instruction has allowed this man to come to his senses and repent. And now the word from Paul is okay, enough. The guy has repented. Receive him back into fellowship and don't continue to treat him like he's an outcast. He's not. He is a brother in Christ. And we need to now forgive and comfort him. Now, this message is not intended to be entirely about this subject, but I felt it was important that we understand that when the church is facing someone who is unruly, a brother or sister in Christ, who are behaving in ways that are disregarding what has been established in the particular community as the way that things are done or not done, uh, then we have to administer discipline. Now, you know, we have been through, as a church here, a situation where a leader in the church has been unruly and, and has been unwilling to follow through with understandings Uh, that had been established beforehand to say, I'm not going to go through that process. I'm just going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to run away. And so it's sad, but it's not over yet. Remember, God is able to spank his kids. And so our prayer is that everyone in this whole situation will be totally restored to God and to one another. But I believe, and I want to say this publicly, I believe that the elders of this church Followed the proper path. That there was an attempt to administer a warning to the unruly, and the unruly simply fled. And that was not right. And I want to honor you who are here for not fleeing as well, but staying. And I believe God is going to bless that. This is a very difficult topic. But it's one that we have lived through, and it's one we need to understand biblically so that we are not without hope. So church discipline protects the body from the unruly one, and it restores the unruly one to fellowship within the church. That's the goal, and it should never fail to be the goal. Next, we turn to another type of person in the church, comfort the faint-hearted, in verse 14 as well. Now, the word comfort here in the Greek means to console, to comfort, to encourage, and even to cheer up. We're told that Barnabas was a, uh, well, his name, Barnabas, literally was a nickname, and it meant son of encouragement. His real name was Josie, okay? You often hear You say, hey, remember Josie? Nobody remembers Josie, but Josie was Barnabas' actual name. Barnabas was his nickname because he was such an encourager. And so the faint-hearted in this passage, it says it means timid, faint-hearted, or just simply discouraged. Now, when anyone goes through something disruptive Disastrous. Uh, there's a, a, a moment of discouragement. The word discouraged means lacking courage, where you no longer have the courage to move forward. You just want to go hide somewhere. You just want to go curl up in a fetal position, right? I joke with my wife sometimes. I, I tell her, you know, I'm having one of those moments where I just want to run into the woods screaming you know? That's my way of expressing frustration and discouragement. But discouragement needs comfort. It needs encouragement. And so we're to comfort the faint-hearted, those who are struggling with a lack of courage to face the situation. And so we do that by consoling them, not preaching to them. Remember, remember Job's counselor's How They came to him and for quite a while they just sat there silently and just were with him while he's going through his his painful experience with the illness and with the loss of his family and the loss of his business interests. And he just says he was at rock bottom. And as long as they were silent, they were helping. But as soon as they started giving him advice, it just went downhill from there. And God finally intervenes and says, who is this who's darkening the truth with counsel, with bad counsel? And so he just kind of brushes them aside and he begins encouraging Job by reminding him of who he is as God. And ultimately Job is restored entirely uh, to his previous position in every way. In fact, God doubled everything that he had had taken away from him. He doubled it. There's only one thing that doesn't get doubled. And I, I'll, this is a, a rabbit trail here for a second, but I always find this intriguing. He gets twice the number of cattle and sheep. He gets twice the amount of land. He gets twice the number of everything that he'd lost. But he only gets the same, I think it was eight children that died in the, in the uh, storm where the building collapsed on top of his kids. The whole book starts with him praying for his kids and offering sacrifices on behalf of his children because he's concerned that maybe they've sinned and they're not even aware that they've sinned. And he wants to make sure that there's no chance that they're going to be lost, okay? So at the end of the book, when everything else is doubled, he only gets eight children. Why? It's because the other eight are not lost. He still has double the children. And so I think that's encouraging, right? Our God is faithful. And we're to be participants in that faithful encouragement. Now, here's a passage that is so full of instruction. And I know some of you have gone through horrible, painful experiences in life. And some of you are going through those experiences right now. And here's what God's Word is to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. That's all our troubles, all our difficulties, all our crises. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble. How can we do that? with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. When God takes you through hard things, he is preparing you to have a ministry of comforting others who are going through hard things. You will have a, a deep reservoir of comfort to offer. The very comfort that God gave to you you will be able to pass on to others in their times of distress. And so when we're told to comfort the faint-hearted, we're to do so as those who have come through that faint-heartedness and experienced the very comfort of God in our lives. My wife Bonnie and I have both gone through the painful experience of, of losing a spouse to illness. That is the hardest thing that either one of us have ever been through. And yet we have come through it. And we found one another. And we have decided to finish life together. And now we find ourselves deeply empathetic, compassionate toward those who've lost a spouse. We have a reservoir of comfort because we have been comforted by God. And although those memories are still painful of going through that experience, it is a, a ministry, I believe, that God provides to those who've been through really, really difficult times. So I hope you're encouraged by that. And then you will see your, your experience in life as a resource and not simply as a burden. So we learn how to comfort the faint-hearted by going through our own trials. Next we come to uphold the weak. Now, this word weak is an important one for Paul. But let's first of all look at the other word, uphold. Uphold the weak. That means to hold up. How's that for Greek scholarship? Sustain, support, or endure. We're to hold up the weak. And the weak in the Greek here means weak. It means feeble. That means uh, not strong. And so the next phrase is without strength. A person is weak. You know, when someone is without strength, when they are weak, you have to help them even to get out of bed. Right? You have to help them sometimes to get to the bathroom. There's nothing wrong. The weak are not, it's not their fault. They're weak. And, and they should be able to enjoy that there are loved ones in their lives who are willing to help them uphold the weak, help them get to where they need to go, and help them to get back, to bring things to them rather than them having to go and get them for themselves. That's the picture that's here, uphold the weak. But Paul uses this word weak in a very special way, and I think we need to take note of it. The weak person in Paul's usage of this word often refers to those whose faith is so weak that they cannot enter into the liberty that we have in Christ to enjoy the good things that God has created for us to enjoy without violating their tender conscience. Their conscience is so tender that they are unable to enjoy The things that God intended for them to enjoy. How does that happen? Well, the conscience is an interesting thing. Your conscience is a very powerful influence over your behavior, but it's only going to serve you well if your conscience has been set to a higher standard, not to your own standard or to the standard of your culture. There are places in the world you could go today and they will grieve and weep over the killing of a fly when there is really no moral means or need for them to grieve. It's a fly. It's not your former grandmother. It's not some important person from the past. That's just a bug. But their conscience has been set by false doctrine. False religion A false religion is a false map of reality. It is a false worldview, and if you're following a false map, then you're going to feel guilty when you don't need to feel guilty. And more dangerously, you won't feel guilty when you ought to feel guilty. We live in a world today that can murder its children within the womb and not feel guilty. Why? Because they have not set their conscience to the higher standard of God's Word. And so your conscience is a lot like a clock or a watch. If I decide to just change the time zone on this watch, I will show up either way late or way early to everything for the rest of the day or the the rest of my life if I never set it back to the right time zone. Now, What is your conscience set to? What higher standard have you set your clock, your conscience, so that you are on time rather than being late or early all the time? Well, in this case, Paul is concerned about those whose conscience is so tender and it's because of the culture they've come out of. So let's take a look at that. In both Rome and in Corinth, he takes up this same issue. He says, receive the one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Don't argue with them about this. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Romans 14, verse 14. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. You see what's going on here? If they were to eat something that they believe to be unclean, it would be sin because they thought it was a sin and they did it anyway. And so we read in Romans 15:1, we then who are strong ought to bear the scruples of the weak, and not please ourselves. So this issue uh, here was about eating meat and drinking wine that had been offered to idols in the temple. You see, out behind the temples, there was a marketplace. And all these sacrifices that were made in the temple were then sliced up and packaged and put out in the marketplace. And you could go to the back of the temple and get some really inexpensive, high-quality cuts of meat and then take that home and and enjoy it. Now, those who had been saved out of the culture of that particular false religion, that temple, when they realized that this meat had been dedicated to an idol, they couldn't eat it for conscience sake. And so Paul is saying, don't try to force them to eat it. Don't try to talk them into eating it. Just simply respect the fact that for them, to eat that would be sin. So we respect the scruples of the weak. And 1 Corinthians 8.4 makes this very clear. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one, no other God but one. However, he says in verse 7, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. See, they're still seeing this as something offered to an idol, something that should not be eaten. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so in Romans 14, remember, we're going back and forth with the same conversation to two different churches. And Paul writes to to us in chapter 14, verse 22 of Romans, Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Wow. Now he's not saying be a hypocrite. He's not saying lie. He's just saying don't talk about it. If you're having stakes at home that had been offered to an idol, keep it to yourself. No. There are other passages of Scripture that come into play here. They had a whole council in Rome where they talked about issues like this and eating things. And so we have to get it into proper sequence. But from Paul's perspective, the idol is not the issue. The issue is the conscience. And so he says, let's see, where do we go here? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself In what he approves. So if you're going to enjoy that steak, enjoy that steak to yourself, by yourself. Don't flaunt your liberty. That's where we get that term. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Do you see what we're dealing with? The obedience of faith here. And what you believe to be pleasing to God, you should be doing. What you believe to be displeasing to God, you should not be doing. If your conscience has been set by the culture, you need to reset your conscience to the Word of God, and then you are free in Christ to enjoy the things that God intended you to enjoy and to not have to feel guilty about that. But until you can, from a heart of faith, Participate in something you shouldn't participate in it. And it's okay. You are what Paul would call the weak. Now that's not an insult. It's an observation. Okay? And he's saying he wants the whole church to recognize that in that area of life you just don't have the faith to do that with a clear conscience. And so we're to just respect your scruples about that. And he gets very clear about if, if, if need be, he'll he won't eat meat or drink wine for the rest of his life if it's going to cause his brother to stumble. It's pretty pretty extreme willingness to sacrifice. But he talks about it in other ways as well. So Paul exhorts us to be patient with those who are weak in faith. It's not just physical weakness. It's just not just mental weakness. Sometimes it's it's an, a weakness of faith, and so we should be supporting and upholding those who are weak in faith and helping them. In fact, Paul says, be patient with everyone. This is an interesting uh, passage. He says, uh, the the word patient actually means long suffering. If, If you're not suffering, you're not being patient. Patience is long suffering. When you are waiting for something, and the lines are long, and it doesn't seem to be moving, and you're just really thinking, I've got other things I'd rather be doing. You're suffering. So, buckle down and suffer long. Long suffering is patience, and patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And so you want to just be able to uh, understand. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The relationship we have with one another is going to require us to endure some level of inconvenience, some level of suffering. We will need some level of patience in interacting with one another uh, because we are so, in ourselves, in our carnal flesh, we are so impatient. We lose our patience when things don't happen, especially in today's world, quickly. We don't want to wait. We want it to happen now. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 13:4, love suffers long and is kind. Kindness is what allows us to be willing to be patient. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is patience, or in some translations, long-suffering. It's the same word in the Greek, but the idea needs to be understood. So don't be surprised, and this takes us to the next thing that he says in this passage, don't be surprised if those you are trying to help turn on you. It could be a teenager, okay, It'd be, it could be your spouse, It could be your neighbor. (coughs) It could be somebody in the church. You're just trying to help. And maybe your attempt to help is not not wise in the way you go about it. Maybe you kind of mess things up. But the relationship goes sour, goes south. It is not uncommon for people to be offended by your efforts to help them. And so Paul brings this next passage in to play. Resist the temptation to retaliate. Because when people don't accept your attempt to minister to them and they speak to you harshly or they speak about you to others harshly, something wells up inside you that wants to get them back. Let's be honest. We want to get the truth out there. And even if the truth hurts them, So be it. It's their fault. They shouldn't have been so impatient with us. Right. So this word renders, it says, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. The word render means to repay, to render, to recompense. You could say to pay back. And the word evil means harmful or wicked Somebody's done something that was harmful to you, and you want to pay them back. And that is not right. In Romans twelve nineteen, we read, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. That means hold it back, put it back in its place. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So when we find ourselves the victim or the casualty of someone else's evil, we are not to try to get them back. If if anyone's going to get back at them, let God get back at them. You don't try to get back at them. Because by doing so, you become a bigger part of the problem. And the cancer of bitterness begins to well up in your own heart. And you lose your peace with God and you start to become unruly. I mean, all kinds of things begin to happen when you decide you're going to be the judge of all the earth and go out there and make everybody pay. So if anyone deserves wrath, let God take care of it, not you. Let God take care of it. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, we are told to love our enemies, to do good even to lend to our enemies and not even expect to get anything back in return. And he says, for your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. You'll be like your father because he's kind to the unthankful and to the evil. And you're to be like God. You're to be godly in regard to these relationships. So the only way to overcome evil is by doing good. And that's exactly what Paul says next. Pursue what is good, but always pursue what is good. Now, pursue means to pursue. It means to chase after. It means to strive for. Now, if you've ever had to chase a toddler, then you get the right idea here. Okay, Uh, Here's this kid running as fast as he can away from you And you, even in your old age, have to catch up with them before they get to the river. This has actually happened to us in our family. So, imagine that scene of pursuing what is good as chasing a toddler and you must catch up. There's no other option. You've got, even though you're huffing and puffing, you must keep running until you catch up with that toddler. That's the way you should approach pursuing what is good. Now, good means beneficial. Good means being kind. Good means being virtuous. And goodness is actually the harmonizing attribute of our God. Of all the communicable attributes of God, his goodness is the one that ties them all together And they all serve his goodness. Okay. If we're going to do one of those mind maps, you know how they do? Where they have all these little balls and rectangles and they're all lines coming back to something central. Well, what would be central in this mind map would be the goodness of God. So his love is an expression of his goodness. His wrath is an expression of his goodness. Just as the discipline of the elders uh, toward an unruly member is, is an expression of goodness toward the congregation in protecting them and toward the one who's unruly in restoring them. See, goodness, even though the behavior itself might feel at the moment like you're being mean. But if it's what the Word of God tells you to do, it's there for a good reason. And so we see... All that God has created in Genesis chapter one is he, he looks at it and he notes that it's good. When something that's not good shows up, God says, It's not good that this man should be alone. And then he does something about it. He he creates a woman, Eve, and that was good. Jesus, when he comes, is going about doing good, according to the Apostle Paul in Acts ten and verse thirty eight. And the gospel itself is good news. Isn't this amazing? Our God is good. Our God is so good. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. So in Romans chapter 12 verse 21 Paul sums it up with this statement. This commandment do not be overcome by evil. You don't have to just stand there and take it. You don't think that evil is supposed to be something that you stand there like a tough guy and let him just slap you back and forth. God's plan is not for you to be passive in the face of evil. God's will is for you to reach out and shake the hand of the man who slapped you. Say God bless you. Turn the other cheek. Not just stand there. Turn the other cheek. You overcome evil with good. Now as you meditate upon this idea, he goes on to say spread the goodness around for both yourselves and for all. This is not just for others, it's also for yourself. It's not just for yourself, it's for everyone else. That's what this is saying. You yourselves means all of you. And All means all. Here's another one of those great Greek insights. All means all. Everyone. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, we read, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Doing well for yourself by doing good for others is God's way of overcoming evil in this world. God does care about you. When he says to love your neighbor, when he says to love your enemy, when he says to overcome evil by doing good, it is not just to benefit those around you. It is to benefit you. You will do well for yourself by doing good for others. That is God's way of overcoming evil in your particular part of the world. By doing good, we can create a stronger and happier family, a stronger marriage. Somebody in that marriage is going to have to start doing good rather than retaliating with evil. And that turns the spiral backwards And the marriage begins to be restored. I love what the Egretches teach about love and respect. I'm not going to respect you until you begin to love me. Well, I'm not going to love you until you begin to respect me. Well, I'm not going to respect you until you begin to love me. Well, then nobody's ever going to get any love or any respect. But what happens when one member of that marriage stops? says, I'm going to love you even though you never respect me. Well, I respect you for that. Well, I love you for respecting me. And I respect you for loving me. And and it goes on and on. And it gets pretty cheesy after a while. (laughs) But you see what happens. When we begin to overcome evil with good, we really can win the day. We're going to have a more successful business. You know, this is what customer service is all about. Somebody comes in complaining about something. Oh, you didn't do this right. You know, make a game of it. Make it. I'm going to turn this angry customer into the most excited, enthusiastic fan of my business. That they're going to be talking about what a great job I did for them for the rest of their lives. Now, in my business, that means I am going to take care of your terrarium no matter what happened. I am going to go above and beyond the call of duty. You know, and, and when you do that, people notice, not all of them, but a lot of them notice, and you find yourself with glowing reviews. You know, where they, they say, if there were more than five stars, I would give ten stars. You overcome evil with good. When you must bow, bow low. Don't bow with your head up. Don't bow by saying, yeah, but. I'm bowing, but. No, I'm bowing. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now, how can I help you? How can I make this right? You can overcome evil with good in your business. You can have a better neighborhood. It's inevitable. Some neighbor is going to be totally unreasonable. They cut down a tree and it falls on your fence. And you ask them to replace the fence and they're offended. Now, you can go to the law if you want. You can press charges or you can say, you know what? I wanted to replace this fence anyway. So how would you like to help me fix the fence? How would you like to help me rebuild a fence? And you can begin to do things together with a neighbor that maybe is a lonely, frustrated guy who just doesn't have any friends. And you reach out and say, you know, I'm kind of glad this tree fell on my fence because we got to know one another. And I'd like to have you over. Let's have dinner. Let's barbecue. Let's eat some meat. Oh, you're a vegetarian. Okay, we'll do that, too. A neighborhood improves when people begin to overcome evil with good. A healthier church. You know, this is a church where we love one another. I observe you as you love one another. And as you've loved me and and Bonnie. And we love you. And whatever comes up in our lives, and something will eventually come up. Let us hope that we are all mature enough in Christ to overcome evil with good to love one another even through the hardest times. And when we are willing to be like this in all of our relationships, we may even find ourselves in a more righteous nation, a nation that gets better leaders. I honestly believe we get the leaders we deserve as a nation. And right now we deserve the leaders we have because of the sin that's in our nation. I pray that God will be merciful and give us renewal and revival that we'll have millions and millions of people turn to Christ and begin to wake up and realize the horrible things that have been done and begin to put a stop to it. But to do it by doing good, not by doing evil. Remember that a secular, unbelieving, conservative can be a monster. We don't want that. We want to overcome evil by doing good. Sometimes that means restraining somebody, Sometimes that means imprisoning somebody. Sometimes it means executing somebody. And all of it is good because it's being done in the light of God's Word and with an intention of keeping our priorities in the right place. My prayer is that this message will have planted a whole bunch of really good seeds and that you'll meditate upon these and they'll come up in your heart as, as fruit and eventually help you make better decisions as you're trying to take care of different kinds of people. So in conclusion, now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. The ministry is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. We have to notice who we're dealing with. Different people will require different responses, and we need to have all the appropriate responses in our repertoire to know how to respond. And then finally, faithful ministry will always require different kinds of care for different kinds of members in Christ's local churches. And so may we be a part of the solution rather than part of the problem. May we walk in the light of God's word and see the benefit of doing things his way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and for this day. Thank you for this uh, truth in your word. And may it be truly a light upon our path. And we ask it in Jesus' name.